in the New Testament, Jesus is seldom referred to as the son of Moses or the son of Abraham, but, but as we saw through Advent this year, um, as we saw, uh, Jesus is repeatedly, constantly in the New Testament referred to as the son of David. I mean, it happens over and over and over again, and at different times throughout this sermon series, I've tried to explain the different reasons as to why that is. And today I want to see this. One of the reasons that Jesus is so often referred to as the son of David is because when, uh, it, when we see David is at his very best, when we see David at his very best, we are getting a glimpse into the character of God. Now, next week, we're going to quickly see David at his very worst, the story of David and Bathsheba. But in today's passage, in David's treatment of, of this guy by the name of Mephibosheth, um, I believe we are seeing David at his very, very best. And so I would like to ask you to please stand with me as we read God's holy word. We're going to read the, the chapter of 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you don't have your Bibles, the words are on the screen there for you. And David said, is, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for, for Jonathan's sake? Now, there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said he'd been, he'd been, he'd been injured um, early on when he was five years old. So he lived his life as a cripple anyways. And the king said to him, he said, well, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Makir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. Then King David sent and he brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Emil at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and he fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of, of Saul, your, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that, I should show that, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belongs to Saul, all that used to belong to Saul and, and, and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your, grand, your, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. May God richly bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. Lord Jesus, 
As always, I begin this sermon with a prayer asking for your, your blessing. And, and Lord, we recognize that, that I have nothing to offer, but it is the work of the Holy Spirit that works in people's hearts. So I pray for, for my brothers you'd give them, and sisters that you'd give them the ability to, to listen for your words and to, to see how important this passage is to them and what, how it speaks to our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Ten weeks ago, Robert Barnes was here preaching, and he got to preach on one of the passages that I was really looking forward to preach on in this series. He got to preach about the relationship that David had with Jonathan. Jonathan was king, one of King David's, one of King Saul's sons. They were very close. And and but here's the thing: it had become clear to Jonathan that even though he was um, the son of the king, even though he was the son of Saul, even though he was the natural heir to the throne that God had actually called David to be the next king rather than him. He understood that God had established a, a covenant with David and had promised to bless David's household instead of his. And as hard as that would be to hear, in humility and his love for David, Jonathan removed himself from the race and he stepped aside in submission to the Lord's will. You may also remember in, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 and 15, Jonathan said to David, in verse 14, he says, listen, if I am still alive, when you, when you become king, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Then in verse 15, he says, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house. In other words, um, promise that you'll be kind to my family as well. And that very day, David and Jonathan, they established a formal covenant with one another. And David swore that he would do as, as he promised to do and treat Jonathan's household well. Now, when we get to today's passage, 20 years have, nearly 20 years have gone by since that promise had been made and since that covenant between David and Jonathan had been established. And during that time, the Lord did for David just as he had promised to do. David had become king. The 12 tribes were finally united. The Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies. It was a time of great peace and prosperity throughout the region. And, and David was settling into his new palace. And like we saw last week, life was pretty good for him at that time. Now Jonathan, on the other hand, didn't make it. We know that Jonathan, along with his father Saul and several of his brothers, were, were killed in battle seven or eight years earlier. Um, but, but David never forgot that, that covenantal promise that, he, that had been made. He, he never forgot both covenantal promises. David never forgot the covenantal promise that God had made with, for him, towards him, and he didn't forget the covenantal promise that he made towards Jonathan. What I want you to see today is how David's life and his relationships were were shaped by those two promises. I want you to see how David's willingness and his ability to fill, fulfill his promise to, to Jonathan was made possible by God's willingness and ability to fill his promise to David. Let me see if I can explain it. Again, life was good for David. He'd finally settled into his role as a king. He knew that he was loved and protected and blessed by the promises that God had made to him. And so he begins to ask in verse 1, he asks, is there still anyone left in the house of Saul 
that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. And now remember, Jonathan had been dead for the better part of a decade, yet David is determined to fulfill the promise, to fulfill that covenant that he had made to him. He's determined to show kindness to, to Jonathan's descendants. Now the word here, the Greek word for kindness that he wants to show is, is the Greek word hesed, or chesed. Um, and it, this same word is sometimes translated as love. Sometimes in the Bible you'll see it translated as kindness. Sometimes you'll see it translated as love. But the fact is, this is a, a very special kind of kindness. It's a special kind of love. Uh, the, the word hesed has such rich meaning that it is usually not translated into English with just one word. It's not usually translated just as kindness or just as love. In, in order to capture the full meaning, the word hesed almost always has an ad adjective attached to it. And not only does it have an adjective attached to it, no one particular adjective can, can really capture its meaning either. So sometimes you'll see the combination of love and, and kindness. You'll, you'll hear, you'll hear it trans, hesed translated as loving kindness. Sometimes it'll be loyal kindness, or the, in, in verse 3, it's, it's referred to as the kindness of God. Uh, sometimes it'll be steadfast love, covenant love, or the love of God. Now the point here is that it is a different kind of love. It is a different kind of kindness. It's a kind of love or kindness that is rooted in the character and the nature of God himself. It's a kind of love, it's a kind of kindness that shapes not only us, but it also shapes the relationships we have with, with others. And, and it could easily be said that it is, it is sort of a self-emptying kind of love. And in a better way, and in order to, uh, to try to explain what I'm talking here, I want to take a couple of minutes. I want us to contrast a couple of different kinds of relationships. And, and you're going to have to stick with me because I think I'll, it'll make sense when I get to the end here. I want to distinguish the difference between consumer relationships and covenant relationships. I, I did this a while back. But, but let's look at consumer relationships first, all right? You and I live in what can be called a free market economy. And like all of us do, I have relationships with certain retailers in our community. For example, I have a relationship with barbers, I have a relationship with grocery stores, or I have a relationship with restaurants. And we, we all do. Now, over the last month or so, a couple of months, some of you may have noticed, or maybe if you looked at me, you might have been able to assume that I'm not very pleased with my barber right now. Um, before COVID, I used to go to this barber up on South Florida, and, and I really liked going there, um, but the lines are just long. I mean, they're just so busy. Um, it's, I mean, it's a great. It's got the pole. It's got the newspapers on the floor. It's all guys in there. It's a, it's a real barber shop, and I, and I like that, but, but, but during COVID, uh, my wife Lori started cutting my hair, and, and we just kind of been doing that for the last few years. Um, but she doesn't like having to cut my hair very much. So after COVID, or recently, I guess, um, she's asked me to go find, go back to the barber. Well, I don't like standing in these long lines. I don't like having to wait down there. So I've been trying, down on County Line, they got a new little great clips or something like that. I've been going in there. And um, I, I don't know what that gal did a couple of weeks ago, but it wasn't good. 
I mean, it just wasn't. I mean, and, and so after about a week of trying and trying to do something with it, I, I, I finally asked Lori to fix it. And so Lori cut my hair again and made it even shorter, and, and which is fine with me. But, but the fact is, she doesn't want to have to do that all the time. And so I am continuing in my quest to find a new barber. Another example, if you live down on the southwest side of town, you understand how important this new Publix has changed many of our lives, right? Say amen, some of you. I mean, it's sad that a Publix would change our lives, but I got to tell you, it has made Lori and I's life so much easier. I mean, I could be down there from my house in three minutes, and I don't have to drive to the one up here over in Hardin. Um, and, and I love going there. I love the convenience of going there. Um, but Aldi's has opened up, and I know Tommy really likes Aldi's. I, Aldi, Aldi's has opened up here on South Florida Avenue, and, and I will sometimes go there because it's so much cheaper. But the fact is, I mean, it, I, there's probably nine or ten stoplights between here and there for me. Uh, getting into the parking lot is like going into the backside of some alley. I've got to bring my own bags. I've got to bring my own boxes. I've got to remember a quarter to use one of their shopping carts. And, and the, but the fact is, I can save a lot of money if I go to all these. And so if I'm in the area, if Lori's in the area, we'll, we'll do that. But, but the fact is, I, I really prefer Publix. It's just that all these is cheaper. And I, I get a little bit more bang for my buck. So, so we just sort of vacillate back and forth. Another example is restaurants. Now, I don't know if you agree with me. If you do, give me a name. If there is no Taco Bell around, um, which is my drug of choice, um, I will run through, and, and I don't really like but I will run through uh, McDonald's. Um, but here's the thing. If there is more than four cars in the drive-thru, I'm not doing it. If there's more than four cars in the drive-thru, I'm going to go to Chick-fil-A. But, but the problem there for me is that Chick-fil-A is, is, is expensive. But I know if there's even 100 cars in the drive-thru, I'm still going to get through quicker than I would at McDonald's with four cars. And, and, and Lori loves those little ice cream cones at Burger King for 50 cents. But even if there's no cars in line at Burger King, I'm still going get to get through quicker than I would have at Chick-fil-A. <laughs> When it comes to consumer relationships, you and I are in them to have our needs met. We're in them, and, and our needs are the priority. And we will sacrifice those relationships if we have to. We will sacrifice those relationships if our needs are not being met or if we believe that our needs could be better met somewhere else. And when it comes to barbershops and grocery stores and restaurants, we have all kinds of options, and they're all vying for our allegiance. And you know what? That is a, that's a good thing. It's a great thing. Because if we go somewhere else, it makes the companies that we leave stand up and take notice. It makes them change the way they do things. It, it really it makes those companies better. Uh, it's a good thing because when companies compete for business in a free market economy, it leads to excellence. It leads to efficiency. It leads to, to, to the betterment of everyone. So, we, so we, the fact is, we all have these consumeristic relationships, and having them are, are good things. They're, they're very good things. All right, now, as I change gears here a little bit, I'm going to 
I'm going to say something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to step out here for a moment. But before I do, let me say this. I, the last thing I want to do, I, I think it's kind of unavoidable, but the last thing I want to do is, is stand up here and sound like a back-in-my-day kind of guy or a get-off-my-lawn kind of guy. Um, but I do want to speak to the younger people in, in the room for a moment. And while what I'm about to say is, is true of every generation, it just is, it seems to be more and more so or, increasing, or increasingly true of, of younger generations. So please hear what I have to say. Something we are seeing in increasing measure is that more and more people are conducting their personal relationships the way they would conduct their retail relationships. We're seeing that, we see, we, and, and we see this in the way people enter into relationships with their friends, with their neighbors, with their church, with their marriages, and, and even with God. Take marriage, for example. Every one of us in here has probably heard somebody say, I didn't sign up for this. And, and, and then they will point to very real and very valid ways in which their needs are not being met in their marriage. And they'll say, you know what, life's too short. God wouldn't want me to be, so you can finish the sentence yourself. God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. God wouldn't want me to be this unhappy. And you know what that is? That is treating covenantal relationships like retail relationships. We see the same thing when it comes to friends, friendships. And, and while it happens in all age brackets, let's all be honest, middle school seems to be the worst, right? Now, middle schoolers, I don't mean to insult you, but, but listen up, you, you tend to be younger, so the fact is you just tend to be less sophisticated than people who've been around longer than you have been. I, I remember when I was a kid, I remember when I was in middle school, I remember seeing it with my children and, and their friends. Uh, and if you're a teacher, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Friendships and, and so, friend, friendship and social status, is, it's like currency, I mean, kids will leave one friend group, and in doing so, they will cut off their former friends completely without warning, without explanation, regardless of who gets hurt, in order to be part of another friend group that they consider to be more popular or socially connected or, or gives them a particular better status in their eyes. <clears throat> that is treating relationships like like. Like consumer relationships. Here's another area. In increasing measure, churches are seeing that young people, younger people, are reluctant or afraid to commit. They don't want to stand up and take ownership and leadership in their churches. They see little value in covenanting with one another. And there's so many options out there that they just go somewhere where nothing is required of them. They will leave one church and they will go to another as easily as they would leave Panera Bread to go to Jason's Deli. That's treating covenantal relationships like consumer relationships. 
And you know what? People even do this kind of thing when it comes to their relationship with God. They think to themselves, you know what? I'll try this God thing out. But when God fails to answer their prayers the way they think that he should or, or they, he fails to meet their needs the way they, they want him to, they say, you know what? I'm out. Now, as I said earlier, in consumer relationships, your needs take priority. And when it comes to barbers or restaurants or grocery stores, that's a good thing. And it's perfectly appropriate. In consumer relationships, you sacrifice the relationship for the sake of your needs. But in a covenant relationship, it's the opposite. In a covenant relationship, a person must sacrifice their needs for the sake of the relationship. In a covenant relationship, the relationship takes priority and your needs become secondary. You're committed to the relationship even when you discover that your needs could be more easily met somewhere else. You're committed to the relationship even when it is costly. And, and that's what Hesed is. That's what covenant love is. That's what steadfast love, that's what loyal kindness is all about. You know what, as I, I said at the very beginning today, when, when we see David at his very best, we are getting a glimpse into the character and to the nature of God. And, 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 and I said it in, in our passion today, I think we are seeing David at his very best. I think we are getting a glimpse into the character of God. In our passage today, David is seeking to fulfill this promise, this oath, this covenant that he had established 15 years earlier with a guy who had been dead for the better part of a decade. You see, David discovers that Jonathan does indeed have a son who is still alive. His name's Mephibosheth. And we're told that he's, he's living in Lodabar. In other words, he's hiding out in the desert. The, 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 the word Lodabar means exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> it means low place or, or no place. In other words, Mephibosheth's living on the, on the west side of the, or the east side of the Jordan River out in the desert up north. He's living in, 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 no, he's in nowhere land. And David brings him back to Jerusalem so that he can fulfill his promise to Jonathan. David brings him back to Jerusalem to, to show Mephibosheth Hesed. And, and that sounds nice, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like the honorable and the right thing to do. And you know what it is. But if you're even remotely familiar with ancient Near Eastern customs, you understand just how radical this was at the time. How unheard of it was. In the ancient Near East, when a new king rose to power, he would typically eliminate any and all uh, potential threats to his reign. He would kill anyone who might have any remote claim or any remote right to the throne themselves, as well as anyone who was associated with them. Dale Ralph Davis says this in his commentary. He says the new king always needed to solidify his position. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation. Everybody knew it, everybody believed it, and everybody practiced it. But not David. 
And here's the undeniable truth about this. Regardless of whether or not he had any political aspirations, Mephibosheth was a real and very real threat to David's reign. Even if he was as committed to David as Jonathan had been, his simple existence created instability for David's kingdom. As long as he is alive, as long as Mephibosheth is alive, there would always be the potential that David's enemies could rally around Mephibosheth to oppose David's reign. And Mephibosheth knows this. So, he, so as he's being carried to the king's palace, he fully expects to be killed by his grandfather's enemy. He fully expects that his family, that his children are going to be killed as well. That's why in, in verse 6, when Mephibosheth was brought before David, he, he falls on his face and he pays homage. And he refers to himself as a dead dog unworthy of the king's attention. I mean, he thought it was all over. But instead, David says to him, he says, you don't have to be afraid. In verse 7, he says, listen, you don't have to be afraid because I am going to show you hesed. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to show you not just kindness, but loving kindness. I'm going to show you the, the kindness of God. I'm going to and not only that, I'm going to restore to you all of your grandfather's wealth. And not only that, you're going to spend the rest of your life eating at the king's table. You're going to spend the rest of your life eating, living here in the palace and eating at my table. In other words, you're going to, you're going to sit at my table just like a son would sit at my table. And you'll do this forever, he tells him. I mean, just think. Think how amazing that must have felt for Mephibosheth. Just think, I mean, what a reversal of fortunes. I mean, Mephibosheth, he expects death, but he, but he gets life. He expects rejection, but he gets restoration. He expects a loss, but he's given wealth. He expects, he expects dishonor, but he is given honor. He goes from living all the way up in Lodabar, living in nowhere, to living in the palace. He comes to the king as an enemy, yet he is given the status of a son. I mean, if you're in the ancient Near East, you're more moved by this than we are. This is incredible. What I want you to see, what I most want you to see here is that David's treatment of Mephibosheth has absolutely nothing to do with Mephibosheth. What I want you to see is that David's loving kindness, his steadfast love, his covenant love, is not based upon the merits of Mephibosheth or his children. But rather, it is for the sake of another. In verse 7, David says, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness, I will show you hesed, for the sake of your father Jonathan. Now, as I've said Twice already, I think, in the sermon, maybe more. When, when we see David at his very best, he is a beautiful picture of... This is a beautiful picture of God's love for us. Which is also for the sake of another. 
I mean, so often we live our lives, and I do too. I'm the pastor, and I, I get up here and preach every but so often I find myself living my life, and you do too, as if, as if my standing or if our standing before God is based upon us. As if it's based upon what we do or, or how faithful we are. But when, when the reality is our, our relationship before God, our status before God, our admission to his table is based upon the faithfulness of another. It's based upon the faithfulness of Jesus. You know, it's often argued by some that all David's covenant with Jonathan required was for him to, to not kill Mephibosheth, to, to let him live. I mean, it's often argued that David could have just left him up in Lodabar out of the public eye. But David doesn't do that. Instead, he restores Mephibosheth. He restores his wealth. He restores his status. He restores his power. And all of these things, David knows full well, could have easily been used against him. All of these things created a threat to David. Remember, there were still people around who, who opposed David. There was, yes, he had great peace and he was in control, but there were still people around who opposed him. There were still people around who, who believed that Mephibosheth was actually the rightful heir to the throne. Yet David willingly subjected himself to this kind of instability. The question is why? I mean, how, because it was the right thing to do. Well, okay, fine. It's the right thing to do. We all often know what the right thing to do, but, but it's like we can't do it, right? The question is why, and not necessarily why, but how? What was it that gave David the ability to do such a thing? What was it that gave David the ability to keep this promise, this covenant that he'd made 20 years earlier with a guy who's been dead for the last decade that hardly anybody knew about? Hardly anybody knew about the covenantal promise that David made with Jonathan. What was it that gave David the ability to love Mephibosheth and his family the way he did? I mean, what was the mechanism for that, that kind of change? Well, remember, we've got to go back to something I said at the very beginning of the sermon. At the, at the very beginning of the sermon, I pointed out that there were actually two covenants that had been established. Yes, David had entered into a covenantal relationship with Jonathan. He'd made promises to Jonathan. But before that, there was first God's covenantal promise to David. What gave David the ability to fulfill his promise, to fulfill the covenant that he made to Jonathan, was his confidence in God's ability and God's willingness to uphold and fulfill his promise and his covenant with David. David was so secure in what God had promised him that it gave him the freedom to live without security, apparent security in other areas. Dr. Jim Cofield, a professor at my former seminary, says, listen, there's three questions that define our lives. And if you're going to write something down, this would be a good thing to write down today. There's three, three questions that define our lives. One is how you see God. I mean, do you see God as omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent? Do you see him as all-knowing, all-powerful, and, and ever-present? That, that, that's a truth that defines our lives. The second one is that, is, is that defines our lives is how we see ourselves. 
as a, child, as a child of God who has a place at the Lord's table. And the third question that defines our lives is how you see God seeing you. As, does he look at you with love? It, it, do you feel loved, protected, and, and blessed by the promises of God? Now, if you understand these truths, if you believe these truths, it will change the way you live. It has to. If you not just know them, but if you believe them, it will change the way you interact with, with people. It will change the way you respond to crisis. It'll change the way you respond to conflict. It will change the way you relate to people who are just simply hard to relate to. It will change the way you respond to your enemies. It will change the way you respond to those who are a threat to, to you. If you not only know this, but if you believe this, it will change the way... You'll become a kinder person. You'll become the kind of person who is able to live with instability. When before you were not. As I said earlier, retail relationships are disposable. And they should be. But personal relationships cannot function that way. Just think about the relationships you have. Not just with your loved ones. But even with your adversaries. Are those relationships being marked by retail love or covenant love? Are those relationships shaped by the knowledge that you have about who God is, who you are in relationship to Him? You know what? It is God's covenant love. It's God's promises to you that give you the ability to love like He does. If you are so rooted and so grounded in his kindness and his love and the promises that he made regardless of circumstances, then you have the ability to be still and withstand the storms of whatever you were facing in life. It is God's covenant love, it is promised to you that makes you a committer rather than a consumer. It's his covenant love and his promise to you that, that enables you to take risks that you wouldn't normally take, that allows you to live with a sense of freedom, that leads you to giving up your attempt to having to try to control everything around you. Because you know he's in control. So let me ask the question, are you able to love others even when it is costly? Are you the kind of person who's able to keep your commitments even when you could have your needs better met somewhere else? Are you able to love others when their mere existence poses a real threat to your career or to your wealth or to your, your, your social status? Let me end with... Before we go to communion, let me read, let's, let's read Romans chapter 8 together. Verses 31 to 39. 
The Apostle Paul writes this. He says, listen, if God is for us, what? Who can be against us? If we believe that, then, then our, our world's not sh- shaken. If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If he's given us the most important thing, what makes us think he won't give us everything else that we need? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If, if, if you are part of God's elect, you don't have to be afraid of the person who's slandering it. You, you're, you can allow the Lord to deal with that situation. You can be at peace and trusting. It's, 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 it's unsettling, as difficult it may be. You can rest. It is God who justifies. Who is, it? Who, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is in... So God not only did he die, not only did he rose from the dead and he ascended to heaven and he sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding and praying for you. And, and, and that, knowing that should make a difference in the way we live. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or danger, or sword... Goes on to verse 37, he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the Hesed of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to come to the table, we confess how often we fail to truly trust in you. We confess that there's so many areas in our lives where it seems like your love and your promises and your covenant to us has not penetrated the way we live. Lord, I'm guilty of this in, in so many ways, and so are my brothers and sisters. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for even in that you have mercy for us. But Lord, we want to, to do more than just sort of grovel and, and limp along in our faith. Lord, help us to see how your promise, your covenant with us truly gives us peace in the midst of difficulty, darkness, conflict, or whatever is going on in our lives. And Lord, may you receive glory and honor. And may we be the kind of people who humble ourselves. Like Mephibosheth in front of David. Who are we? We're like dead dogs. And, but yet you say, no, rise. I, I, I've restored you. Lord, may we be as amazed. May we be as shocked. May we as be overwhelmed by your love for us as Mephibosheth was by David's love for him, which was not for the sake of him, but for another, and ours is not for the sake of us, but for another, for Jesus. So he received glory. Lord, we pray this in in your holy name. Amen.